Hi everybody, welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I'm Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. I just want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. These are companies I'm using in clinical practice, and I appreciate the fact that they make this podcast series possible. Designs for Health is a family-owned professional brand offered exclusively to healthcare professionals and their patients. For over 25 years, they've been the healthcare professional's trusted source for research-backed nutritional products. Their guiding philosophy, Science First, is demonstrated by a commitment to research-driven products, synergistic formulations, and meaningful quantities of therapeutic ingredients. Find them at www.designsforhealth.com. Genova Diagnostics is an advanced clinical laboratory committed to the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of chronic diseases. Our proprietary testing offers actionable results that can be used to personalize the treatment protocols of your patient's unique needs. Good health starts with Genova testing. Learn more at www.gdx.net. That's www.gdx.net. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I'm Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with David Ludwig. Uh, As you know, David is the author of Always Hungry, published on January 5th of this year and is now a New York Times bestseller. So we're going to dive into that in just a moment. But let me tell you a little bit about his background. Dr. Ludwig is a practicing endocrinologist and researcher at Boston's Children's Hospital, professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, and professor of nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health. He's founding director of the Optimal Weight for Life program at Boston Children's Hospital, one of the oldest and largest family-based weight management programs. He also directs the New Balance Foundation Obesity Prevention Center. Described as an obesity warrior by Time Magazine, he's been featured in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, USA Today, And he's been on NPR, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, and other networks. Dr. Ludwig, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dr. Fitzgerald. Great to be with you today. Uh, You know, I've enjoyed reading your book. You've synthesized a a really high level of complexity uh, into something I think anyone can understand. Um, I appreciate you really... You know, you, you've you've used a superscript to cite lots of research, which makes it easy for me to go and look at the studies that you're looking at. And um, one of the fun anecdotes in the beginning of the book is your own process of, uh, you know, looking at the research and that shaping you. In fact, I think you say something, and you know, correct me if I'm I'm misstating, is that you actually found it beneficial that you're medical training was so limited in nutrition training because that gave you sort of a tabula rasa, I guess, an open mind to go in there and just look at the research. Tell me about that. Right. Yes. Well, I had no uh, bad habits to break, <laughs> you know, as we know, for uh, worse, but also in, in my cases, in some way for better, there's very little nutrition education in medical school historically. Right. And I, I, I'm not sure that has changed much since I finished my training and the you know, uh, um, a few decades ago. Um, and the irony is that uh, most cases of chronic disease are related to lifestyle and diet. Yes. And yet we study uh, overwhelmingly drug and surgical treatments and neglect the, the origins of these diseases. And I know you in your practice and functional medicine, you know, takes a very different approach to this. But so I finished medical school with and my training with little background in nutrition and got involved in 
basic research in the bench looking at genes and biological factors that affect body weight in rodents. Uh, and at the same time, I was setting up a, a clinic uh, at my hospital, a weight management clinic, and using the same old paradigm of calories in, calories out, which uh, seemed to neglect the fascinating biological factors that we were studying in the laboratory and were presumed to be critical in affecting body weight. So, you know, in the laboratory, it was about biology. In the clinic, we neglected that and assumed this was mm -hmm. all willpower. Right. Um, and that was a disconnect that I struggled with for quite a while until I began to understand a new way th of thinking about uh, food, food based on its effects on our hormones, metabolism, literally the expression of our genes that um, opened up a, an entirely new approach to uh, weight management that was uh, free of uh, the calorie in, calorie out prism through which we have been focused so long. You know, I'm curious in your, in your, you know, drill down into the literature over the years. I mean, you cite a 1924 JAMA paper in your book. Um, it, it, it has all the research over the years been towards this calories in, calories out phenomenon? Actually, you quote in that 20, 1924 study that they realize it's probably, you know, way more complex. But was anybody sort of getting a bigger idea around it, or has it always been attempting to push that one idea? Well, in the, uh, that 1924 piece was an editorial by the, uh, by the editors of JAMA questioning the simplicity of the calorie-in, calorie-out model. You know, right. it sounds... And, and, of course, this has been questioned um, intermittently through the years and largely dismissed, discredited, marginalized mm. as nonsense. What... Um, what but nobody, and you know, my the approach that I take in, in my book, or others who have questioned the value of thinking of all calories are alike. We're not questioning the physics of it, the first law of right. thermodynamics that says that you know energy can't be created or stored. Calories in minus calories out equals calories stored. Nobody's questioning the physics of it. We're just asking, in which side of the equation do we actually have control? The conventional way of thinking is that you just have to eat less and move more, and you'll take care of a problem, any kind of a weight problem over time. There are a few awkward um, uh, under uh, uh, soft spots to this way of thinking. Um, the first is that um, you know if you can't do it, it implies that there's something the matter with you. That yes. it, it, you know you lack willpower, or discipline, or maybe even have a character issue, and so people in our society, largely for this reason, get stigmatized, discriminated against if they have a weight problem in ways that would be unacceptable for virtually any other medical problem. We seem to think that it's people's fault that they could just will away the extra weight if they had discipline. Um, this disregards the fact that calorie reduction is an extraordinarily poor long-term strategy for weight loss. Yes. Very few people can people can do it. Um, and um, the ultimate irony is if conscious control over calories were so important, how did humans manage to avoid massive swings in our body weight right. before the very notion of the calorie was invented 100 years ago? Right, right. Yeah. Thank you. So what happens, so what happens when we cut back on calories? Well, 
we we've known this for essentially a century. Mm-hmm. The body, I mean, and actually, we everybody's intuitively know this all along. When you cut back calories, it's not like our body is a, an inert object. We're not toaster ovens. We're dynamic biological systems. When you cut back on calories, the body fights back. First thing that happens is we get hungrier. Yes. People tend to overeat because they're already hungry. So you cut back calories and you make that worse. Hunger isn't a passing feeling. It's a primal biological signal that the body needs fuel. Very hard to ignore over the long term. You can do so for hours or maybe a few days or a while, but over the long term, very difficult to do. If you actually do manage to ignore your hunger, then the body has other tricks, um, including slowing metabolism. Your metabolism slows down, and that combination of slow metabolism and rising hunger creates uh, a battle that very few people uh, can win over the long term. And you talk about the impact of just going on this direction, you know, the stress response when you're in this basic, you know, in the starvation phase and cortisol rises, adrenaline is released, and what happens then? Yeah, so, so what's, we've got to ask what's the underlying driver of weight gain? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our genes aren't changing, leading us to become programmed to be heavier and heavier every year for, for inherited reasons. So what's going on? You know, we tend to think of obesity as a state of excess, too many calories in the fat cells. But it's really a state of starvation to the rest of the body. Right. The fundamental problem is that uh, fat cells have been triggered to hoard too many calories. So they suck up uh, all of these calorie-rich substances in the blood that come from, from the food we eat. So there are too few for the rest of the body. And the brain does what it's designed to do. When it doesn't see enough fuel for its needs, uh, it makes you hungry. Yes. And it also activates other areas of the brain involved in craving and reward. Um, and then it, it actually starts secreting stress hormones, which serve to recruit calories from lean tissue in ways that you don't want to happen. Because yes. that, you know, that's not good for your body composition or heart disease risk factors. Um, and metabolism slows down. So... If you just cut back calories, you make that situation worse. If the, the fundamental problem is that fat cells on calorie storage overdrive, there aren't enough in the bloodstream, and you're cutting back calories, you're putting yourself deeper into starvation. Yes, you can do it for a while. Anybody can lose a few pounds, but what happens after weeks and months? You know, it, always, it, it almost always comes back unless you change what you eat. And the analogy I would use is like edema. You know, edema is a state in which fluid leaks out of the blood vessels and can accumulate elsewhere in the body, such as the legs. Someone with edema might have 20 extra pounds of water in their body, Mm -hmm. but oftentimes they have insatiable, unquenchable thirst. Why? Because even though the body has too much water, it's not where it needs to be in the bloodstream mm-hmm. to satisfy the needs of the tissues uh, throughout the body. And so drinking more temporarily satisfies that thirst, but then the fluid just continues to leak into the tissues. And that's the same thing that happens with obesity. We overeat to keep enough calories in the bloodstream, but if they're continuing to be sucked up excessively into fat cells, 
it's a never-ending battle of hunger, overeating, and weight gain. But if we treat that problem at its source, and this critically involves lowering levels of the hormone insulin, mm-hmm. uh, then the fat cells open up, calories flood back into the body, hunger decreases, metabolism speeds up, and you begin to lose weight with your body's cooperation, not with your body kicking and screaming. So moving over to insulin, we, so we, you've outlined beautifully the, the, the starvation effect. Now let's layer into that the idea that low fat is good, which has been around, as you point out, for about 40 years. Um, and, uh, you know, replacing this low fat has tended, you know, is, is higher sugar, simple carbohydrate processed foods. So layer that into um, what's happening metabolically. All right, so if you like the calorie balance model of weight control, you've got to love a low-fat diet because fat has more than twice the calories of the other major nutrients, carbohydrate and protein. Remember the first Food Guide Pyramid of 1992? All fats are at the top to be consumed sparingly, and a range of very processed carbohydrates with the base, grain-based carbohydrates, up to six to six to eleven servings a day. Some people were actually suggesting sugar was fine to eat because it helped you dilute fat calories. This was a quote from one review article. You dilute out your fat calories in your diet by eating more sugar. So we've we've created these we've created a diet a low fat diet in the US which is based on these highly processed carbohydrates that either raise sugar directly or digest into sugar very, very quickly. White bread raises blood sugar actually faster than table sugar. Table sugar is half fructose. Now, fructose in large amounts isn't a a good thing for the liver, but white bread is all glucose, and uh, you can digest it in minutes. Blood sugar surges, insulin surges. Insulin is the ultimate fat cell fertilizer. Yes. It's the most potent anabolic hormone for fat cells there is. This is endocrinology 101. Someone with type 1 diabetes, a child coming in, first diagnosed, will not have had enough insulin in the body, and they've invariably lost weight, Mm -hmm. no matter how much they're eating, 5, 7, 10,000 calories. Give them the right amount of insulin, and their growth trajectory resumes a normal course. If you give them too much insulin, they'll predictably gain weight. Start someone with type 2 diabetes on insulin, they gain weight. So this is absolutely clear. Now, if you don't, make, if you don't have diabetes, the quickest way to adjust your insulin levels is based on the amount of processed carbohydrates you consume. These highly processed carbs, sugar and refined grains and potato products, raise insulin calorie for calorie more than any other food in existence. That insulin programs the incoming calories to get sucked up in fat, and it locks the fat closed. It's like being in a kitchen where you have lots and lots of food, but it's all locked away in the cupboard. So you get into the kitchen, you can't get to it, and you're hungry. Right. That's the situation. So we've got to, and the quickest way to reverse this in the diet that we propose, we offer, we have a three-phase program in the book, um, is a rich, high-fat diet, uh, nuts and nut butters, full-fat dairy, rich sauces and spreads, savory proteins, 
but also not uh, dark chocolate, I, I should add, uh, yeah. but also not a very low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diet. So there are um, a lot of natural carbohydrates just slow digest, digesting. Mm -hmm. So this um, lowers insulin, calms chronic inflammation, and helps those fat cells open up, flood the body with calories, uh, moving metabolism into weight loss mode. And you do this fairly aggressively. So the Always Hungry protocol is, a, is, is as you say, a three-phase program. And, you know, it's really quite high fat um, at the outset, but, you know, relatively briefly. Right. So uh, for two weeks, we bring fat up to 50%. Now, that's, mm -hmm. again, not an Atkins diet, but it's a lush, rich, high-fat diet. All those fats help you displace the processed carbohydrates without missing them. And uh, there's research, including from our group, to suggest that you can quite literally turn off the brain craving centers um, in as little as one meal. Um, may I tell you about one of the studies? That we yeah, did? absolutely. So we took um, 12, we published this in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition 2013. We took uh, 12 young men who with high body weight and gave them, in a crossover fashion, um, Two milkshakes, one on one day, another on the other day, randomized order. The milkshakes actually have the same protein, fat, carbohydrate, calories, same sweetness, which was adjusted experimentally. One had fast-acting carbohydrate, corn syrup, and the other has slow-digesting carbohydrate in the form of uncooked cornstarch, so that's less processed, takes longer to digest. We found that, as expected, the uh, blood sugar and insulin shot up after the fast-acting carbohydrate mm -hmm. milkshake. Four hours later, blood sugar was crashing, and people reported feeling hungrier. And at that time, we did brain scans with something called functional MRI. Mm -hmm. And we saw that one area of the brain had lit up in every single participant. I've never seen this consistent a result in nutrition research. Usually you, you get a few people going in the opposite direction. In this case, everybody did, so we had astronomical statistical power mm -hmm. to, to look at this. That area was called the nucleus accumbens, which is, for those of uh, your listeners like me who aren't neuroanatomists, um, that was, that's, the nucleus accumbens is the center of the striatal dopamine pleasure mm -hmm. and reward system. It's considered ground zero for the classic addictions of cocaine, heroin, alcoholism, raising a provocative idea that these highly processed foods are hijacking the brain's reward system and producing something akin to food addiction. Right. But it also suggests that one meal, the, the, the slow-acting milkshake, turned off that uh, craving center. And the reason that you can turn it off so quickly is simply when the calories that you eat from food stay around in the bloodstream longer, when they don't get sucked up into the, into the fat cells so quickly, the brain says, I like it. The brain says, you know what, I've got enough to run metabolism, and so it says, I can relax, and it turns off hunger, it turns off cravings. Right. Yeah, it's fast. So we start out with this rich, high-fat diet, and then um, to help jumpstart weight loss, it helps the lower insulin, chronic inflammation, it helps these fat cells open up. And then we transition after two weeks to phase two, which adds back whole kernel grains. Now, for people who 
you don't have to eat the grains if, if some people don't like to do that, and, and we'll do best with relatively lower carbohydrate. Some people can tolerate it, and um, let's face it, we, there's a lot of tasty grain products out there, and some people can do really well on whole kernel, you know, high fiber, even especially some of these ancestral grains. Um, so there are plenty of gluten-free alternatives. Mm-hmm. And we add back a touch of sugar, so you get to have a little you know, a sweet dessert once in a while. But you stay in phase two, which is still quite high fat, until your weight comes down to its new lower set point. And then you enter phase three, where we allow people to experiment with some of the more processed carbs according to their body's ability to handle it. Um, so if you can tolerate it, and some people, especially after eating well for a few months, have the ability to do that, then enjoy yourself. We want to have asked people for the minimum of deprivation to provide the maximum of, of benefit. And if, if your body can handle it, then, you know, go ahead and have uh, a pastry when you're traveling in Paris, have linguine in Italy, or at a birthday party at home, you know, have some cake and ice cream. But many people will find that they do best with little to none, none of those. And we have symptom trackers and, and charts to help you find your tipping point. And if you're one of those people, especially people with like prediabetes or other significant metabolic compromise, they're going to do best with really little to no, none of that. You'll see it in your symptoms, and you'll realize that the, the benefits of feeling good, being in control of cravings, uh, are so much, and, and in control of your weight, are so much greater than the fleeting pleasure of the processed carbs. Do you, now, since, since there'll be clinicians listening here, do you, I mean, are there labs that you would recommend looking at? You know, you, you talk about insulin sensitivity, leptin, thyroid function, cortisol, and so forth. Anything uh, in our support of our patients doing this program you would suggest? You know, there's different, yeah, there's different levels of assessment which are going to be relevant for uh, different practices mm-hmm. and uh, different patients. You know, if so, if, you know, a, a dietitian seeing a patient doesn't necessarily, you know, you know, won't necessarily be ordering laboratories themselves. Uh, uh, but if you're a physician, and uh, um, especially if a patient ha- seems to have uh, high elevated risk factors, um, uh, then you know there are some standard workups to be done for metabolic assessment uh, and. In addition, we can, and I can you know, mention a few, but um, and one can also think about adding on some other laboratories to look specifically for um, insulin resistance and chronic inflammation. So, you know, a standard um, workup would you know, involve um, like a, an assessment of uh, diabetes risk. So, hemoglobin A1C is, uh, is an easy one, and mm-hmm. you know, just as good as doing an oral glucose tolerance test in many situations. Mm-hmm. One thing you don't get is uh, of interest is that insulin 30 minutes into an oral glucose tolerance test. That shows whether you're a high insulin secretor, and those people seem to be very sensitive to processed carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. That's more of a, uh, a specialty interest right now. So a hemoglobin A1C, maybe a fasting blood sugar. Of course, a, lipid, a, fa- a fasting lipid panel is helpful. Uh, the classic risk factor was LDL, and that's why we everybody worried so much about saturated fat. Saturated fat raises LDL, but 
those tend to be bigger, fluffier particles that are a little less atherogenic. Yes. And, they all, and saturated fat also raises HDL, so the total ratio remains relatively unchanged. Um, triglycerides, uh, in addition, or, you know, one can do a, a full um, LDL particle size panel. That's mm-hmm. a more elaborate test and for specialized circumstances, people with higher risk. Um, and then I oftentimes get an ALT as a marker of fatty liver. It's not a perfect one, but it, you know, it, uh, if it's significantly elevated, uh, that uh, can be a particular concern. Um, and oh, uh, in terms of insulin levels itself, you can just get a fasting insulin, which yeah. is uh, a good marker of uh, insulin resistance. And then CRP, which is uh, a marker of chronic inflammation, C-reactive protein. Okay. If you want to, in special circumstances, you can assess for thyroid, and I mean, there's a many, many places that I'm sure your, you know, your your team or your, you know, various specialists will go based on the clinical indications. Right. Thank you. Okay. I think that those are tests everybody's familiar with, and um, you know, are good at, are good investigations to make. Uh, are you, do you do you concern yourself with looking at ketones specifically when you're doing maybe the phase one of this? Is that something that you've investigated in your research at all? Yes, uh, we've investigated, and this this is not a ketogenic diet, um, both because even in phase one with 25% carbohydrate, that's really uh, enough, and we intentionally designed it to provide enough so people weren't dipping in and out of ketosis, and I'll tell you why we designed it that way in a moment, but also the 25% protein. Yes. Um, and protein is gluconeogenic. So uh, uh, with the combination of with only 50% fat, people will not uh, become ketotic unless, they're, uh, unless there's an unusual situation. They're extremely physically active or mm-hmm. um, they're intentionally uh, restricting calories, which we ask people not to do. Um, but you know there is a, there is a lot of interest in ketogenic diets now, and uh, perhaps especially for type two diabetes. The famous exercise physiologist Tim Noakes from South Africa had recommended a low fat diet for many years, and uh, he was running marathons and developed type two diabetes himself. Mm. And then he became interested in low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets. Uh, got on one himself. Basically, he's, his diabetes is in total remission. He speaks of this publicly, and he wrote a letter of apology saying, I'm sorry to the world for recommending a low-fat diet for so many years. So in type 2 diabetes, I think the, a ketogenic diet has a lot of interest. It really needs to be tested. Of course, this diet's been used for decades. It shows remarkable effects in epilepsy in children. Some yes. children who have intractable epilepsy um, get complete, get cured on a ketogenic diet. Right. That said, it's an arduous regimen. It requires a lot of focused attention. And it can be difficult to come in and out. Some people, so, you know, when you're not a ketogenic, your brain is dependent upon glucose. As you transition into a ketogenic diet, the brain shifts from a primary dependence on glucose to ketones. Ketones are a great fuel for the brain. And they come directly from fat, and you've got an unlimited amount of it in your body, in effect, uh, fat, enough to fuel ketones for weeks or months in some cases. Glucose 
is stored very in limited amounts in the body. So there's a lot of interest in why that could be beneficial. But going in and out of it, the body has to transition, and that can be a rocky transition for people. So we want to stay away from, you know, skirting the edge. That edge would be if you were, say, eating 15% protein and 15 or 20% carbohydrate. You'd be kind of going in and out, and people may not feel good at that. So we really backed off from that degree of, of, of restriction. You know, I was going to ask you, um, and that makes sense, and I, I appreciate your explanation around that. Um, and I, the protein is a little bit on the lower side in your program. And, you know, when you move into the final phase, it's actually at 20%. Um, and you just mentioned that, you know, protein is gluconeogenic. And I did, any, any comments around that, just keeping the protein a little bit lower? Well, actually, so, so uh, phase one and two, the protein is, is substantially higher than prevailing um, consumption levels. It's 25%. You know, prevailing levels are about 15 to 18% um, in the U.S. population. We okay. increase the protein during phases one and two because people will be naturally eating less, not through calorie restriction, but because they're more satiated and they're they're eating overall less, so increasing the proportion of protein makes sure that there's enough grams of protein uh, during the weight loss phase, and that you know has metabolic advantages. It causes glucagon secretion, which helps balance insulin. And uh, but then as you your weight drops back to its new lower level, you'll increase your calorie intake because you're no longer living off of stored fat that you're burning. So your total calorie and food intake goes up. You wind up eating the same amount of protein, but its proportion decreases a little bit. Okay. Now, there are some diets that go even higher in protein, like the Atkins diet goes right. up to 30%. Um, and I think that's, in most cases, I, I think that's more than necessary. Um, it, it, sometimes it's hard to get all that. It really involves eating a lot of meat. There's no other good way to... Um, get that amount of protein in than eating a lot of meat, which has its own issues, um, which we could discuss. And, um, you know, protein um, in, in high amounts is uh, very anabolic. It, it causes mm -hmm. insulin secretion. It mm -hmm. can itself overstimulate the fat cells. So, you know, we, we think that the sweet spot is around 20, 25%. Okay. But that will vary from person to person. Okay. Okay, that's, yeah, that's, thank you. Um, so, you know, another thing that you're emphasizing in your book is uh, lifestyle, you know, adequate sleep, some movement, which I think you kind of turn the volume up on over time, and a focus on stress relief. I mean, these are all incredibly important uh, comments and how they'll impact. Yeah, well, you know, in, in one sense, there, it's kind of like, you know, to you, to your listeners, it's going to be just intuitively obvious, but just to walk through it a little bit, you know, the fat cells are influenced by many, many factors. Mm -hmm. um, insulin is the granddaddy of them all, but um, sleep um, deprivation and stress also produce, you know, we oftentimes think, well, if you're just too sleepy, you're going to be making poor decisions. Uh, you'll be eating too much. You'll not be able to exert control. And there, there may be some truth to that. But 
sleep deprivation and stress act on a much more fundamental biological level um, by increasing counter-regulatory hormones and destabilizing circadian rhythms uh, in ways that program fat cells for calorie storage. Um, stress, of course, we think of cortisol. Cortisol is the um, uh, uh, related to prednisone, which is oftentimes used as an anti-inflammatory for autoimmune diseases, but too much prednisone, we know what that causes, Cushing's syndrome, mm-hmm. in which there is uh, a buildup of fat around the midsection, visceral adiposity, the highest risk, and um, a breakdown of lean tissue. So that's the worst possible state to be in. Um, so we want to make sure that cortisol and the stress hormones you know, are not working against us uh, and undermining the benefits of a good diet. So we focus on uh, a variety of practical techniques to, for stress reduction and um, talk about creating a sleep sanctuary to make sure that, you know, we're all, so many of us are overstimulated. We're on electronics all the time and, you know, and I, I'm just as guilty as, as anybody, uh, especially with the rollout of my book, which takes a lot of, um, you know, takes a lot of time on, on social media and, and, and the like. But, now, that can work against us uh, because it gets into a vicious cycle of stress and then not sleeping well, you know, which leads to other poorly adaptive changes. You know, we may depend upon caffeine too much, alcohol too much, and, and so just some attention to consciously, mindfully winding down at the end of the day, creating a, a bedroom that is supportive of good quality sleep, um, and, you know, in reserving the bedroom, you know, just for sleep. We, we say the three things, uh, rest, reading, and romance. That's what we <laughs> reserve the bedroom for. And, uh, you, you know, and, and start that turn down around, you know, 8 o'clock at night, ideally. And then lastly, physical activity has oftentimes been advocated to burn off calories, but you really don't burn off that many short of marathon levels. Um, you can spend 20 grueling minutes on a treadmill, and replace them in a few seconds with a handful of races. Mm-hmm. What physical activity does is improve insulin sensitivity and lower chronic inflammation. So, um, and so this synergizes with diet. And we focus on enjoyable physical activities. We want people to, you know, be having fun again. And and the the prototype of it for a book is the passeggiata. It's right. uh, the Italian walk that uh, people take after dinner in Italy where, you know, you're not wearing spandex and a pedometer. You eat, you have dinner, hopefully, a, you know, a delicious, uh, low-glycemic, uh, higher-fat meal, and then you, you, you get out and you, you go for a stroll, you see other people, you get the last few rays of, of, of light before turning in, you know, and you tune up your metabolism at a time when your body's absorbing these calories. So that's where we have people start. If they're engaged in a, a fitness program, we actually ask them to cut back a bit during the first two weeks as their body transitions out of this uh, high insulin state. Thank you for that explanation. Nicely, nicely stated. And I only have a few more questions, so you can uh, sure. take care of yourself as well. I know it's been quite a tour that you're on. Um, Gut microbiome and metabolism, of course, lots of research coming coming down the pike, and, you know, those of us in functional medicine often 
measure the gut microbiome. Lots of us are doing stool analysis and really paying attention to optimizing it through diet, diet and lifestyle. And, you know, we know that it's going to influence uh, both the foods that we crave, you know, inflammation, uh, and, you know, you know, research around metabolism. Comments on that? Well, no question that uh, our internal garden is of critical importance to us, uh, and we focus in the book on the three Ps, prebiotics, probiotics, and polyphenols. The prebiotics are the poorly digestible plant substances like fiber uh, that serve as growth for uh, the microbes in our gut. Uh, probiotics are the microbes themselves that we can get from a supplement, but traditionally we've gotten them from fermented foods and other environmental sources. Uh, you know, I, 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 I have our family and my seven-year-old, we, at home, we, you know, we eat naturally fermented foods every day, kimchi, sauerkraut, um, and you can get, you know, yogurt is a, a great source of probiotics, so you don't have to necessarily be taking uh, probiotic pills. Um, and we don't we're just at the dawn of this new yes. revolution. I mean, we don't even know uh, whether the probiotics put into pills are the right ones. Yes. Um, and uh, so I think I don't have anything against supplementation, but, w again, we, the, there has been a way that humans throughout our history and virtually every culture around the world has gotten probiotics, and that's through naturally fermented foods. I don't mean, like, you can't just get a like a kosher pickle from the... Um, the deli, because that is typically not fermented. They add um, acid to give it that fermented taste. But actual traditionally fermented um, foods that you can get, um, and or you can even better make yourself. Um, how great, you know, to ferment to ferment foods at home, to yes. pickle them at home. And then the last part of it is the proba is the polyphenols, and these are the plant-like substances. Oftentimes they give plants their color and their flavor. You know, one classic example is um, curcumin from the herb turmeric, which serve as um, herbicides in our internal garden, but the kind of a, the organic herbicide inhibit the growth of deleterious microbes and allow the beneficial microbes to take over. So again, prebiotics, probiotics, and polyphenols are the key to cultivating a healthy internal garden, and uh, that we know plays a critical role in weight maintenance and chronic disease reduction. What about, you know, going back to herbicides, not natural herbicides, but, you know, what about pesticides, herbicides, and the myriad toxins that we're exposed to and their impact on altering our metabolism? Right. Well, um, and it's not just the things that get into our bodies unintentionally, but there are things that are put into foods intentionally, including emulsifiers, mm -hmm. uh, a range of things like uh, lecithin and carrageenan and um, you know, a variety of names for them. Food additives, which seem to um, it can have all sorts of negative effects on our gut microbiome and elsewhere. In terms of the emulsifiers and the like, they may actually disrupt the um, tight junctions uh, mm -hmm. that uh, link gut cells together, uh, in creating what uh, the, you know, the, the syndrome of leaky gut, uh, yes. which, in which you know, microbial uh, products from the gut or incompletely digested antigens, foods, 
leak across and chronically overstimulate the immune system, leading to a range of symptoms, chronic diseases and the like. Virtually every chronic disease has been linked to, at least in theory, leaky gut syndrome. So we need more research there. But So those are a lot of food additives that are intentionally put there. And in terms of the persistent organic pollutants, uh, herbicides and pesticides and the like, or things that leach out from plastics, uh, many of these are endocrine disruptors. So yes. they literally alter the functioning of our uh, hormone system in ways that could plausibly overstimulate fat cells or cause all sorts of other problems. Um, and that's why we use a, a whole foods-based uh, diet and um, you know, with an emphasis on plant foods. Uh, there are vegetarian options, but we don't, uh, we don't, there's options for meat eaters as well, um, including full-fat dairy. We really want to make sure that people have a range of choices to fit their um, their biology, their lifestyle, their ethics and preferences. Um, but by focusing on whole foods and tending to eat a little lower on the food chain, you know, we can reduce uh, exposures to many of these substances and then use a water filter. Um, and uh, let's all work together to try to um, you know, create food policies that will favor the smaller farmer that's less likely to, you know, use uh, tremendous amounts of uh, artificial chemicals uh, in big monoculture, as is so common with, you know, uh, big, big agriculture. So if we can restore some of the more traditional practices in agriculture, mm -hmm. we can create a food environment that is really more supportive of all of us. That's very nicely said. Thank you so much. In, you know, just in wrapping up, I know you've been involved in, you know, policy and really kind of helping to shape where we might be headed. Or, and are you thinking about that now with this book and, and the research that you're doing, how um, big picture we might be going forward in this country? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the first step is to bring healing uh, into our own homes and to ourselves, you know, um, with the right food and the right stress reduction and, and care of ourselves. But once we've brought that healing to ourselves, we've mm -hmm. reduced our chronic disease burden and you know, we are feeling more energetic, that's energy we can you know, then use uh, banding together, uh, hopefully uh, in a grassroots campaign to help detoxify our environment. You know, yes. uh, we've heard of this term, the toxic environment, in which private profits and special interests have trumped public health. You know, uh, they have inordinate political influence in Washington. They're the ones who can give the $100,000 or million-dollar donations to politicians. And unfortunately, you know, those politicians are beholden to the big, big food and big ag agriculture and and so create policies that don't reflect the needs of the population. Right. The epilogue of my book, uh, it was felt very important to put that there. Um, it's a very short section at the end of the book, which um, offers a 10-point plan to, as I described, restore sanity to our food environment. And um, the last two uh, among the other offerings, uh, one is uh, a vote with the ballot, because we can, you know, why, why haven't we seen the 
the candidates for president uh, talk about food policy and chronic disease reduction. You know, I think it's an outrage that that's been ignored. But we can, through our voting, demand that politicians respond to our interests and not special interests. But you can also vote with the fork. Mm -hmm. Every time you uh, buy food, you send a powerful message to the food industry. The food industry isn't immoral. They're just there to make a profit, and they're just as happy to make a profit from healthy foods as unhealthy foods. And we can guide them um, uh, to to the healthy alternatives. Um, I should say that we. I do want to add that um, I've created a Facebook community um, uh, with my wife. My wife did the recipes and meal plans oh. in the book. And uh, she oversaw our pilot. She's a gourmet natural foods chef. And uh, so she, we together um, about uh, two weeks ago created a Facebook community. It's called the Official Always Hungry Book Community in Facebook. And we already have about 1,500 members in just two weeks uh, for, self, for support. And mm-hmm. uh, they're sharing recipes and, and helping each other through the program, but that's just the first step, and uh, we really hope to, I invite your listeners to join, and then um, uh, and then I, I hope that we'll transition over time into a grassroots uh, community that um, can begin, be of service to others, and then also be demanding changes in, in our social environment to make the easy choice um, and the healthy choice. Dr. Ludwig, that's, a, I think, a great place for us to end. It's inspiring, and I appreciate the service that you're doing and also the, you know, just the years of careful research that, um, that you've been doing. And I think the, the book that you have published, is, um, it will be very useful for many of us. You know, thank you so much for your interest and your great questions, and I know you're doing great work, um, and uh, you know, I wish you much luck with it. Thank you. Okay.